This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. For almost two decades, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice, engaging authors and academics who, in their research and studies, contribute in some form or fashion to changing the way government does business. The U.S. Department of Defense's direct care system is one of the largest healthcare delivery systems in the world, producing valuable care for its beneficiaries but it has structural challenges that are hindering its ability to accomplish its mission in a cost-effective manner. The rising cost of healthcare in DOD and the high cost of the direct care system have placed a spotlight on the management of DOD's military treatment facilities in the recent years. This combined with concerns about adequacy and supporting the readiness mission and quality has led Congress to direct a major overhaul of the DOD's direct care system. Modernizing DOD's direct care system is good for national security, military service members, and the taxpayers, and can even be done in a way to improve civilian trauma care across the country. What challenges are the DOD's direct care system facing, and what are the five actions you could take to improve military hospital performance? Today, we will explore these questions and so much more with John Whitley, author of the IBM Center Report, Five Actions to Improve Military Hospital Performance. John, uh, welcome to the show. It's great to have you back. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. So uh, the U.S. Department of Defense has two primary medical missions. Um, I'd like you to identify those missions. And could you provide an overview of the military health system? What's the scale of operation? How How much of the DOD budget goes to the delivery of health and care? Military health system is, it's very large. And so what DOD does, Department of Defense does, is they really have two medical missions. The first is to provide an operational medical capability, a medical capability that it can deploy into a combat environment and deliver life-saving care uh, for injuries in the battlefield and also to, to keep the force uh, healthy and fit uh, in the fight. The second mission is to deliver beneficiary care. Like any large employer, uh, the Department of Defense offers a health care benefit. Uh, they have active duty members. They have the active duty family members and retirees. So it's really about nine, nine and a half million eligible beneficiaries for the DOD health benefit. So it's quite a large mission. Overall, this uh, mission costs over – the two missions together cost over $50 billion a year. 
almost 10 percent of the Department of Defense's uh, budget. We have a large medical force, about 120,000 active duty medical personnel, about 80,000 uh, guard and reserve uh, part-time personnel, 40,000 civilians uh, work in the system. And we run a, a large uh, system of hospitals and clinics. So we have a, over 50 uh, inpatient hospitals uh, and over 300 clinics, outpatient clinics. So, you know, part of that, a major component, as you alluded to, the inpatient capacity is the military treatment facility, MTFs. Uh, what are they exactly and how, uh, how do they factor into the military health system in providing those services? Military hospitals are a core element of the Department of Defense's medical capability. And they range anywhere from large inpatient hospitals with a wide range of services that do the full range of surgical specialties and things like that all the way to, to very small clinics uh, that only do outpatient, uh, have very limited specialty uh, services offered. So the full gambit uh, are, are included. So the first question somebody might ask is, why does DOD run hospitals? Uh, that doesn't seem like a core military capability. Well, we have this operational medical force, and the operational medical force has to be ready to deploy. They have to be clinically current, ready to deploy and do their care uh, in the battlefield. And so the historic model has been what we would do during peacetime is that we would build these hospitals around them and that they could deliver some of the beneficiary care in-house, and that would be a way for them to be clinically current, to be practicing medicine, and then we could deploy them from them uh, when the war breaks out. You know, one of the things, I mean, we'll talk about it, but you notice that the direct care system which is the inpatient system. It's, it's gro there's a lot of growing challenges that it's facing and um, that hinder the effectiveness of delivering on both of those missions that you identified. Would you briefly identify those challenges? And how do these challenges differ from, say, uh, non-DOD health systems? The system has been in place where we use the operational medical force to deliver some portion of beneficiary care uh, in these military hospitals to maintain their clinical skills. That system has been in place for a long time, many decades now. And when that system emerged, the way we fought wars was different. Uh, the way healthcare was delivered in the country was different. We fought wars. If we go all the way back to World War II, to Korea, we would build large hospitals in theater in a combat theater. We would deliver extensive care in theater, rehabilitating soldiers, returning them uh, to duty. We really don't fight wars that way anymore. Keeping a severely injured patient in theater becomes a burden on the, the theater and, and the, the operation of that theater. It's not the best environment to give uh, health care. Uh, it's not the best environment. It's not the best thing for the patient, for the casualty. So we move patients out relatively quickly now. And, and that may vary in different types of conflicts, uh, but that general model is, is, is here to stay. In addition to those changes, we now are delivering less, not the full spectrum, not the full continuum of care in theater. We're really focused on the emergency, the very uh, early life-saving uh, steps, and then we want to get that patient out to a, to a fixed facility where they can get better and higher quality care. So while that change has been going on, Healthcare has been changing. Healthcare has become significantly more specialized. In World War II, a physician could do a, a very wide range of things. We see a lot of specialization now. So if you're going to be uh, doing pediatric care, you specialize in pediatric care. If you're going to be doing uh, primary care, family practice care, you specialize in that. If you're going to be doing critical care, you specialize in that. If you're going to be in emergency medicine, you specialize in that. If you're going to be doing trauma surgery, you specialize in that. As healthcare has become and the profession of medicine has become more specialized, the 
challenges of a theater, a combat theater that's now evolving towards very immediate life-saving care on severely injured trauma patients, a beneficiary care system that's predominantly focused on labor and delivery is our largest uh, product line. We, we have a young, healthy, active military force. They have lots of babies. Uh, so labor and delivery, pediatric care, those are the types of things that we do a lot of in the beneficiary care mission. So what's the challenge has become, and this was really highlighted, this is a lesson learned from uh, the operation in Iraq and Afghanistan is that the relationship, the synergy between the two systems has diminished. And so to think about how we get the right workload for our operational medical force and to think about how we deliver the benefit in the most cost-effective way and deliver the highest quality benefit, we have to rethink some of the ways that we've done it in the past. Yeah. You know, and you, you touched on it a little bit. I'd like to see if you could go a little deeper. You know, uh, given the medical forces are closer uh, to the battlefield, as you pointed out, and they're providing immediate care and, and less extended care, mm-hmm. um, how does this new reality uh, limit the ability for substitutions across mm-hmm. specialties and how um, military medicine personnel are not ready for those deployments? So. When medicine was less specialized and we were doing a broader range of services in theater, we could take a combat hospital and we could say, I'll just deploy uh, a general surgeon. Uh, to that hospital. And in the ward beds, you know, there's holding capacity there. Uh, just like a normal hospital, uh, it looks a little different, but it's it's got the same ideas. So there's a war, there's wards, there's intensive care wards, there's minimal care wards, uh, et cetera. If you have a wide range of patients there and you're treating them for a long period of time, you can say, I can have a general – in medicine, is not as specialized. You can have general medical officers uh, provide that care and you can map different specialties to that. You can have a pediatrician and an obstetrician and a, and a urologist there. As medicines become more specialized and as the types of care and as narrowed in theater, now uh, leading that surgical team, you really want a trauma surgeon, somebody who's specialized, a fellowship-trained critical care trauma surgery specialist. Operating that uh, those wards, particularly the intensive care, you want critical care physicians. You want physicians who are specialists in how to treat ventilated patients, how to deal with th- these high-end, very sick people. So the ability to to say, well, I'll just take what I have off the shelf, a pediatrician off the shelf, and I'll put them in that situation. That the, the ability to do that, there's still there's still some situations where you can do that, but the number of situations where you can do that is dramatically reduced. And when we think about what we want to deliver in theater, what we want to deliver in theater is the highest possible care we can. We really want to achieve a goal of nobody dies from potentially survivable injury. If there was anything the medical community could have done, it was done and the patient was saved. That's what we want, patient-centric combat casualty care. And so then you have to think through, then who do you want treating that patient? You want a specialist in the types of conditions that patient's going to have. And, and, you know, we're talking about the readiness component. And you mentioned in your report for the IBM Center that th- this this misalignment, if you will, and I think that's the word you use, was somewhat reduced during uh, the wars. Uh, Why is it still a challenge today? So – it got better. We, we had a certain portion of the force getting deployed very frequently. We call that force stress in DOD. Uh, we had other portions of the force that were deploying less frequently and had less force stress. And so the, the institutions and the organizations within DOD responded and started to migrate the force. Good thing, obviously, that the wars are over uh, or that the, the level of activity is significantly reduced. That's something we can all be happy with. The challenge with that is it takes that recognition of what the realities are and what the needs are away. And so what we've seen, and we've seen this over extended history, after Vietnam, after the first uh, Gulf War, during extended periods of peacetime, when there isn't that 
that pressure to say we have to get these people out the door, we have to have providers that can go out to the combat theater and deliver that care, then the crushing realities of the day-to-day running these hospitals for beneficiary health care takes over. And, it, and this, is, this is just a reality in, in a large bureaucratic organization that when your day job is running a beneficiary care hospital, your focus becomes running a beneficiary care hospital. So the people that we had started to migrate to, the, the specialists that we had started to grow, they don't have the workload that they need to be current, so they, they start, they leave, they leave the service. Uh, I can do better out in the civilian sector. The people who stay are the people who are being used, the pediatricians, the obstetricians, and, and they're very important, uh, but that's not what we need for the, for the war mission. So really, just to repeat myself, the crushing realities of, of day-to-day operations take over. And it's been very hard for the Department of Defense in the past. It's been very hard for the Department of Defense to keep a focus on readiness, to keep a focus on the operational mission uh, when there wasn't an actual war going on. How can we improve military hospital performance? We'll explore this question and so much more on our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors Returns. Next week, listen to a special edition of The Business of Government magazine, a year in review with host Michael Keegan, as he explores key trends in government management and highlights insights from a host of government executives who are changing the way the government does business. That's next week on a special New Year's edition of The Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with John Whitley, author of the IBM Center Report, Five Actions to Improve Military Hospital Performance. So, uh, John, you know, in the previous segment, you mentioned uh, one of the challenges of the uh, military health system in having uh, the the system itself is the readiness component challenge. So I want to talk to the second major challenge of the DoD having a, a you know owning and operating a integrated health delivery healthcare a network is cost. The direct care system in DoD is expensive to operate. Uh, you point that out very clearly in your report. Can you elaborate on why that's the case and how does cost? How do these cost challenges that the DOD or the uh, med- uh, military health system deal with differ or s- are similar to those in the private sector? So the first thing to say is that costing more in and of itself may or may not be a bad thing. If it costs more because or, – or and it does in some ways. So when it's costing more because we've taken regular health care, civilian-style health care, and we've added this readiness, this operational requirement on top of it. And so the providers have to move in and out and go out and do their training and then come back to deliver the ready care, the, the beneficiary care. 
when it sings like that, that's a justified expense. So the first thing to say is is some excess cost is probably a necessary uh, element of running the system uh, to maintain this operational mission. But the second point to make, though, is that when we try to control for that, we try to look at the data, uh, we see that there's excess cost above and beyond even that. And so this gets into the question then of what do we need this system to be and what do we uh, want out of this system when it costs more than it would to be to simply purchase the care. What are the reasons for that? Uh, when we talk about uh, the recommendations, we'll, we'll get into this in more detail. But one of the most important reasons is the hospital network is funded through budgets. So I get a budget for my people. I get a budget for my contracts. I get a budget for my equipment. There's no uh, payment for the output produced. Mm -hmm. So being paid for inputs consumed as opposed to outputs produced, uh, a rational manager then says, well, what do I do? I try to consume as many inputs as possible. Uh, and producing output uh, is important to me, but it's not what I'm rewarded for. Uh, so, so the first thing is we don't have a, a, a management incentive or a, a financial structure that's, that's – uh, the financial structure is very different than what the civilian uh, sector experiences. And we don't. A second thing is competition. Yeah. There's no better way to focus somebody's mind on – to focus a manager's mind, to focus a workforce mind on producing the best product possible at the lowest cost possible than to know that if they don't do that – their customers leave and they go out of business and they're out of a job. That's uh, what the private sector experiences. Now, it's not perfect. I mean, we obviously have rural communities with one hospital. We have uh, situations where uh, where there's not uh, as much competition as we'd like. But in the DOD system, we have relatively little. And DOD will, will attempt it sometimes even to, to try to, to push beneficiaries in, to keep them in. So you don't have uh, what the private sector has, which is that immediate threat of if I don't perform if I don't focus on what the customer needs, um, I might not have a job tomorrow. All of that kind of manifests itself in then the kind of the tangible things that we can measure. One of the tangible things that we can measure is provider productivity. We have relatively low productivity in our hospitals. And again, this isn't because any of the individual providers are bad. Mm -hmm. It's because of those incentives. Mm -hmm. The incentives are I get paid for my inputs, not my outputs. I don't face competition. So there's a variety of reasons. The net result is that uh, our hospitals are significantly more uh, in some locations and some areas as high as 40 and 50 percent higher than than the civilian equivalent. And, you know, this, as you point out in your report, and you do a wonderful job, it's sort of a segue, but it's really important, is some of these challenges were addressed in the uh, FY17 NDAA, the National Defense uh, Authorization Act, and it, it really directed DOD to engage in some sweeping reforms uh, of the MHS. Uh, in over a generation, I mean, from what I read, um, could you give us an overview of those reforms and wh what are some of the key points to them? Yeah, the, the 2017 Defense Authorization Act is, is a sweeping generational overhaul of the direct care system. It really had a lot of aspects that addressed more than what we're talking about, the yeah. military hospitals. It addressed the military force. It addressed uh, the way we purchase care. Uh, we do purchase a lot of care in the private sector. Uh, but a big focus of it was on the military hospitals. There's several provisions. Uh, I, I'll highlight two or three of those provisions. Uh, Section 702 
of the uh, defense authorization bill actually realigns the hospitals, the ownership and management at the strategic level of those hospitals from the military services where they're owned and operated now to what's called the Defense Health Agency, which is uh, an organization within DOD that collectivizes much of the healthcare activities of the department. So physically taking those 50 or so hospitals and moving them, uh, not physically moving them, moving them in a management in an organizational sense, moving them to the Defense Health Agency. That's a, that's a major change. Uh, another provision, Section 703, directs the department to, to go through each of the hospitals and now specifically categorize them. Which ones are delivering that readiness-related workload, that, that delivering the value for the operational mission? And for those, what additional investments are needed to continue that? And in particular, it directs uh, all of those hospitals to become a civilian certified level one or uh, level two trauma center. Then it says, take the rest of your hospitals, that's of the 50, that's only a, set of, a subset of those. Take the rest of them. Some of them we might need to keep in certain locations because it's a remote area or there's, there's, a, there's a lack of civilian infrastructure for whatever reason. And so we might have a few that we need to keep, but the rest, uh, it actually directs, now let's downsize those to, to clinics. Let's transition those, let's right-size those to, to what capability they can actually support uh, and what, act, what capability they should actually be providing. So that's a, a very significant change uh, to how we uh, deliver uh, a lot of the care. Other significant sections talking about uh, opening the system up to more civilians for that trauma role. So if you become a level one and level two trauma center, fortunately, in peacetime in the U.S., our military bases don't have a lot of trauma cases on them. So if you want to get trauma workload, if you want to become a, a a trauma center, if you want to meet the certification requirements, which have volume uh, requirements associated with them, you have to open up and become civilian credentialed uh, trauma center. And the last thing I'll emphasize from the Defense Authorization Act on the military hospital piece is there's a strong emphasis on military civilian partnerships. So it's really partnering uh, with the civilian community for uh, in many places what we do, we, we tend to live behind our gate, uh, we in the Department of Defense, and we, and we don't go out and we're not always focused on what kind a neighbor we are, and we're not always focused on what kinds of capabilities and opportunities exist out in the community around us. And so there's a strong emphasis on public-private partnerships in the bill. When we were working, we were working on, on this report, um, and you were shepherding it through. I believe there was some talk of a of a new uh, NDAA. Um, and so, my question—I know it's not in your report per se—but I'd like to ask this about how does some of the stuff that's up on the hill. How does it uh, complement or extend those reforms that you just outlined? The the 2018 National Defense was actually has just come out. Uh, the conference version uh, okay, of that bill has just come out and it's not been enacted yet. Um, uh, but that bill really reinforces uh, these changes. And in particular, that first section, the realignment of the military hospitals from the services to the Defense Health Agency, there's uh, there's language in there re really reinforcing that, clarifying in some ways what was meant, and really emphasizing the importance uh, to the Congress, to the Senate Armed Services Committee and the House Armed Services Committee, the conferees, really emphasizing uh, the importance of that provision to them is, uh, is discussed uh, quite directly in the, the 2018 conference report. You've done a wonderful job of, of, of highlighting the challenges to the system, but the crux of your report is identifying um, what they can do to fix the system or to improve its performance. And that's what I want to get to now. Uh, your report for the IBM Center identifies five actions um, to improve military hospital performance. I'd like to explore each one of them in depth. And the first one is you clearly uh, identify um, 
cl- the provision of clear roles and mission. Let's define that. Let's say that. Would you elaborate on that action? Yeah, and, and I led with that one because I really thought it was the most important one. And we can also tie that to the defense authorization bill because that was a large part of their motivation, I think, uh, in doing it. When you think about these military hospitals, when you go visit them and you, and you talk to the commanding officer, the, uh, the equivalent of what would be the CEO of the hospital, and you think about the challenges they face, they face a strong signal to deliver as much beneficiary care as they can, to utilize their assets as effectively as they can to deliver that beneficiary care, to, to attract beneficiaries into their facility. They're held to financial standards for that. They're held to performance standards for that. Uh, it's, a, it's a tremendous responsibility. Then they're kind of told off to the side, oh, and try to keep your medical force ready. Yeah. They're not given resources to do that. They don't have a lot of ability and opportunity to do that uh, with the, the workload that they have. So they're really put in just a, an impossible situation. They're told verbally that your priority is to maintain the readiness of the medical force, everything that's material to them, their budgets, uh, their performance evaluations, everything else is geared towards beneficiary mission. So the first thing you need to do if you're going to effectively run these facilities is identify what you're running them for and then put in place the management processes to achieve that. Measure how much you're achieving that and put in place management processes to achieve that. So those provisions I talked about in the Defense Authorization Bill get directly at these items. The Section 702, by moving the military hospitals from uh, the military services mm-hmm. to the Defense Health Agency, what you're really starting to do there is you're taking the military departments, the Army, Navy, and Air Force, the Marine Corps healthcare is provided by the Navy. You're taking the Army, Navy, and Air Force. You're taking the surgeons general in those – and you're saying – You've had this beneficiary care role and you've had this operational readiness role. We really want you to focus on the readiness role. So it's really giving the surgeons general clear guidance on what their role is. It's taking the Defense Health Agency and say, you now have this this brick and mortar, this infrastructure, and we want you to manage it to deliver the beneficiary care outcomes and the control the cost. When you combine that with Section 703, the one that said, go through and categorize your facilities. It's now saying, and select those facilities that are really delivering readiness-related workload, that are really contributing to the readiness. And then those hospitals, which will only be a subset of the 50, Mm -hmm. those hospitals, now we know that we have to add additional funding, that we have to take additional steps to make them trauma centers, et cetera, to deliver on that readiness mission. And that can be clearly identified. And you can say, here's the funding line to make you a trauma center. Here's the funding line to give you those types of things. Here's the beneficiary care role you play. And we can do that. All the rest of those hospitals now are saying, you are a beneficiary care platform. And if you're needed because of geography and an isolated area, we'll keep you as an inpatient. If you're not needed for that, we're going to downsize you to an outpatient facility. Uh, But we can really focus Focus on delivering beneficiary care, if that's with a civilian workforce, if that's with civilian leadership, whatever that is, you know, we can start to take those management actions to focus in there. So really identifying what at the hospital level and what at the system level is expected of a surgeon general, of a hospital commanding officer, uh, of a hospital workforce, really trying to define that and make that clear as opposed to a kind of airy, it's two missions, do them both, but here's the resources for one and here's, you know, uh, et cetera. So, so I think uh, that's a really key step. Yeah. You know, you know, what you noted in your report is that the NDAA uh, provided a, a nearly comprehensive reform mm-hmm. of the military hospitals, but one major reform it seemed to admit was financial management reform. Mm-hmm. 
would you outline for me the key financial management reforms needed to improve the performance? Yeah. So, and, and we talked about this earlier when we were talking about the challenges of cost. What, what are some of the underlying root causes of the high cost of these facilities? And they're a series of facilities that are paid, given a budget for inputs and not paid for their outputs. And in that sense, they're really kind of an outlier in the Department of Defense today. Uh, when you look at the, the rest of the support establishment, DOD runs a lot of big support establishments, uh, depots uh, for ships, for aircraft, for ground vehicles. We run large uh, maintenance facilities. We run a large supply function. We run uh, uh, dozens of billions of dollars uh, supply function, getting parts for vehicles, parts for airplanes, parts for ships out uh, to operators. Uh, we run a large IT infrastructure. We run a large finance and accounting system. But when you look at all those things, depots, supply, IT, uh, finance and accounting, all of those things are put into revolving funds uh, or uh, forms of working capital funds. And so the idea here is you want to set up within a large organization like DOD customer buyer-seller relationships. You want the customer to recognize that depot overhauls are not free, that healthcare is not free, that getting supplies is not free. You want the customer to recognize, so this is the customer, here's the operating forces. You want the operating forces to recognize that uh, these things are costly and you have to think through what you really need and what you don't really need. You want the supplier, the depot, to, to think of themselves as a business. We're not, the Department of Defense isn't in the isn't a business, isn't trying to out make a profit, but you want somebody who's doing a service like providing major overhauls or producing beneficiary health care, you want them to think about, well, what am I producing? What are my costs? Is it what the customer demands, uh, et cetera? So medical is an outlier in that it is still the traditional, I'll give you an appropriated budget for inputs, and you'll deliver those outputs then free to the operating forces. The active duty force, the beneficiaries, the family members, the retirees will get their health care from the hospital for free. The reform that we talk about in the report is moving them into a working capital fund, which would mean they would be paid for the outputs for the procedures and health care that they deliver. Uh, then they would have to manage themselves internally, purchase their inputs, uh, spend their money on labor, on capital equipment, on consumable supplies in a way that delivers that output and that they can trace to uh, costs. And what challenges are they addressing? Are they just better performance, better tracking of transparency of monies? What What is it addressing? It's really getting at all, all of those. So we're trying to address on the transparency side. We're trying to address on the customer, the operating forces that consume these medical sources. We're trying to give them visibility into what these things cost so that they can think through. And then on the production side, we're trying to give the hospital transparency into what its costs are, how that translates into outputs, how it compares to civilian benchmarks, et cetera. In terms of, of incentives and management incentives, we're trying to give that hospital commander a credible framework for how he or she produces their outputs, their, their services, uh, and getting paid for those services so that then they know how to manage uh, their workforce, manage their equipment purchases. Another factor is it also gives them more flexibility. It gives the commanding officer more flexibility to run his hospitals. Right now, when I have a budget, uh, an appropriated budget with a operations and maintenance line, a procurement line, I have strict controls on how that money can be moved around. I have strict controls about uh, what has to happen at year end, et cetera. In a working capital fund, you actually have greater flexibility. You actually have the ability to now to, to optimize how you spend your money, not complete 
flexibility, but you have much greater flexibility to operate much more like a business, to talk about how you're going to spend your money, to carry money over when it's appropriate from year end, et cetera, and to, to think through how you weigh your investments and your operating expenses and, and produce your care in the most effective way possible. And how do these reforms sort of complement or are informed by the material put out by the Military Compensation and Retirement Modernization Com- Commission? Yep. This, this was a recommendation of the Military Compensation and Retirement Modernization Commission. In our report for the IBM Center here, we're focused on the military hospitals. And what the Military Compensation and Retirement Modernization Commission is they actually talked about it at an even higher level. They included the Working Capital Fund recommendation. But they also talked about it at a higher level. Right now, we talked about those two missions, the operational mission, the beneficiary care mission. The way that money is appropriated for these missions right now is in one consolidated – most of it, not all of it, but most of it is in one consolidated appropriation called the Defense Health Program appropriation. So you can think through kind of the odd situation this creates. I have an operational mission, which is similar to – flying aircraft, uh, training infantry and armored vehicles, steaming ships. I have an operational medical mission, but it's not in a trade space with those other readiness-related functions. It's now been pulled out of that trade space. And now it's placed into, I have a beneficiary care function, which which kind of sits next to cash compensation, retirement compensation, other in-kind goods and services provided as elements of compensation. And now I've taken healthcare out of that trade space. And now I put an operational mission and a and a personnel compensation function, put them into a trade space with each other, which gets all back to those incentive problems we talked about in the past. Now my incentive is the beneficiary care mission is pressing on me day to day. I'll take risk against an operational mission by moving money uh, because it's one consolidated appropriation here. So the, the Military Compensation Retirement Modernization Commission actually went even further and talked about separating those funds, putting the readiness dollars for the readiness mission back with the services, putting it in a trade space with other readiness functions, and taking the beneficiary care function and putting it into the personnel accounts as part of the compensation instruments. So what we recommend in the IBM Center paper is really a building block element for that. It's really a a step that both at the tactical level improves the management of the hospitals and at the strategic level makes some of these broader financial reforms easier to do. How can DOD leverage public-private partnerships to improve its direct care performance? We'll explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with John Whitley, author of the IBM Center Report, 
Five Actions to Improve Military Hospital Performance. So, uh, John, um, a significant implication of not having clearly defined roles and missions combined with the commingled non-transparent funding um, is that there is a impossible, almost impossible to emphasize the importance of data in managing. Um, would you elaborate on your third action, your third recommended action around data-driven management reforms? And what types of reforms are needed in this area? Yep. And, and I'll start there where, where a lot of the conversation always needs to start, which is with that readiness or that operational mission. We talked earlier on about how medicine has changed, warfighting practice has changed, and we're really demanding – we're demanding incredible things out of our medical providers when they go into theater. We're, we're, de- we're putting – Physicians that can do surgical interventions within the earshot of gunfire. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is incredible. Historically, when it was a doctor's a doctor's a doctor, and uh, we just send who we have, you know, it wasn't really essential to think about what their clinical skill levels were and were they clinically proficient in the types of things they're going to do down downrange. And so we said, well, are they credentialed? And if they have their credentials in place, and and are there any other obvious uh, disqualifiers? No, then that doctor's ready to go. And that nurse and that other provider as well is ready to go. So the first big step is and, – and that's not the way we treat the rest of the force, right? If you're a pilot uh, and you want to deploy uh, or the military wants to deploy you, uh, you're a helicopter pilot who flies uh, with aircraft carriers. You're going to have to demonstrate proficiency uh, in doing night landings on a helicopter or on an aircraft carrier. You're going to have to demonstrate proficiency in flying over water. You're going to have to demonstrate proficiency in a whole lot of things. Uh, the specific tasks you're going to have to do downrange. But medical kind of was kind of out of that loop. So the first big rock in data-driven management is measuring the readiness Mm -hmm. of the medical force. And one part of that is the credentials. Are you credentialed? Are you the right specialist for the type of care you're going to be doing uh, downrange? We talked about the substitution challenges Mm -hmm. in the past. Other parts of that are volume. How much workload have you been doing and has it been of the right type of workload to do that? You don't want to overemphasize volume. I mean, really measuring readiness is a holistic measure of credentials, of volume, of peer evaluations and outcomes on procedures performed and things like that. So it's a lot of things and you don't want to overemphasize volume. But one key part is going to be volume uh, as we move forward. And that is how much workload have you done of the type that's relevant for what you're going to do downrange. And this is just a simple fact, right? Who do you want treating a severely injured trauma patient? You want somebody who does trauma cases for a living and is an expert in that. You don't want somebody who doesn't do that for a living and and is going to, well, I'll I'll cross map and cross train to that at the last minute. So that's the first big rock area is readiness, measuring the readiness of providers of all the medical force and then determining who can go and who's ready to go based on their clinical proficiency and what they're going to be asked to do downrange. You don't want somebody treating a severely injured trauma patient seeing one for the first time in a combat zone. A second area is the, the management of these hospitals. And so here uh, we talked about the financial reform. You know, So if you move them into a working capital fund and the entire payment model becomes around outputs produced, that's the direct application of data-driven management. In the meantime, you can approximate that with the data that we have and the systems that we have. And and I highlight uh, the Army's system in the report uh, where they actually do develop, they look at the workload that their military hospitals produce, and they actually develop an output 
project-based budget based on that. Now, this is virtual, so it's not as good. It's not as going to be uh, as strong an incentive as a working capital fund is. But you're trying to virtually recreate that environment by giving uh, them the money in this form and then helping them manage to those budgets. You know, uh, to what extent uh, should DOD expand the defense readiness reporting system to include specific measurement of clinical currency for the medical force? And how would you make this happen? So for that helicopter pilot, for for that ship driver, for that airplane pilot, for that tank commander, we measure what they do. And we measure how often they do it. We measure how proficient they are in doing it. And that's all captured. Uh, at the highest level, there's, there's subordinate systems that capture it in more granular detail. But at the highest level, we capture that in the Defense Readiness Reporting System. We call it DERS. And, and this is what gives you your data on is the force ready to deploy. It has individual element. Are individuals ready to deploy? And it has units and, and group elements as well. And we're really talking here about the individual elements of that. Is the individual uh, person ready to deploy? And this is what I was alluding to. Uh, you've made it much more concrete. This is what I was alluding to earlier where we haven't done that in the past for the medical. So in the past, DERS, the Defense Readiness Reporting System, has not had entries for oh, the clinical uh, proficiency of the medical force. And so what we're really talking about is taking at the individual level in the Defense Readiness Reporting System, we're talking about adding entries. And it's, again, it's the full gambit. It's the credentials. It's the peer evaluation. It's everything. But one part of that would be how much workload have they done? Have they done enough to meet basic you know, if there's a civilian analogy, or is there a civilian benchmark standard we can base off? If not, can we develop our own benchmark standards? And so it's, have they done enough workload of the types of things they're going to be required to do downrange that we can say, yes, they are ready to go and do that on a moment's notice downrange? That's great. So, John, what's the benefit of using volume in civilian healthcare as a measure of proficiency? And more importantly, can this be done in the military health system context? yep. yep. So I always have to start with a caveat, which yes. I've already made, but I have to start with a caveat that volume is not the only thing that we care about. But it is an important thing. So what the civilian community has found is – and it's common sense. We all know this, right? But the more you do of something, particularly complex procedure-oriented things, so like a knee replacement or a hip replacement, those types of orthopedic procedures, there's an academic literature that's basically found uh, – and the numbers vary, but I'll just give kind of round numbers here – that for individual surgeons, you should be doing at least 50 a year of those procedures. If you do 50 or above, you have the best outcomes. You can get the patient in and out quickly. That reduces infection risk. That reduces complications risk. You can do the procedure in a better way so that there's less likelihood for complication. And when you start to get below 50, uh, you start to have adverse outcomes comes. And then they have a companion measure, which is at the facility level. A facility should be doing at least 200 a year. And that brings in the providers, but that also brings in the entire care team. So there's an example of something that's done a lot of in the civilian sector where it's become pretty clear. And, it, and, and you know, I wouldn't say uh, universally accepted, but I'd say widely accepted that this is an important thing to capture. And that if you want to go, if you're going to get your knee done, you want to you want to ask the doctor how many he's done last year, you know. So you see a lot of that in the high repetitive, uh, high cost things because that's obviously where the interest is in the private sector. It starts to get thinner when you get to trauma and things like that. We do have some good uh, academic literature we can use in things like intensive care unit, ventilated patients, things like that. 
And we have some some evidence uh, that we've developed from Iraq and Afghanistan. And there is uh, there's not a complete absence of literature uh, in the trauma trauma surgery. You're looking at 250 major cases a year type of thing to be considered uh, proficient. But the data is definitely thinner there. It's definitely less. So this is a core DOD function. This area, this trauma area. So this is an area where DOD could actually contribute to not only its own mission but contribute to the civilian sector as well by going out and starting to develop these things. And in fact, there was a National Academy, National Academy of the Sciences report just last year that talked about how the civilian trauma system in the U.S. and the DOD medical capability could partner up through public-private partnerships to do some of these types of things. One of the other actions you mentioned in improving uh, military hospital performance is getting out of the gate, getting out of your isolated system to your neighbors, to private sector hospitals. And so how important is that for, for improving performance? And more importantly, just as you said, your recommended action around private-public partnerships, what exactly would that entail? So it's very important. It was heavily emphasized in the defense authorization bill that we talked about a little while ago. And it cuts across all the areas, right? So you can think about it in the beneficiary account, the, the, the pediatric uh, work, the, the obstetrics, the labor and delivery wards. Uh, why are we doing a lot of those things? And if we need to have some control over the capability, why not have a civilian operate that capability? So there's a lot of things like that. But let me give you a, a much full, a fuller example on the readiness side. Mm-hmm. We talk about it in the report a lot, and I like to talk about it. I, I was in the Army. I used to be stationed at Fort Bragg, so it's, it's close to home. So let's talk about Fort Bragg, North Carolina. We have a military hospital there, a great facility, Walmack Army Medical Center, doing predominantly beneficiary care, not having the workload and volume it needs in trauma care and emergency medicine care, critical care, et cetera. Eight miles away is Cape Fear Valley Regional Medical Center. Very large, very robust uh, civilian hospital, much larger than Walmack Army Medical Center. Happens to have, it happens to be a level three trauma center, happens to be one of the busiest emergency rooms in the country, happens to have one of the, this is not a good thing overall, but it, but from DOD's perspective, a good thing, happens to have one of the highest fractions of penetrating trauma. Most trauma in the U.S. is blunt trauma, vehicle accidents. We have penetrating trauma in combat zones, shrapnel, gunshots, etc. So eight miles away. We have a hospital with one of the busiest emergency rooms in the country, one of the highest percentages of penetrating injuries of all types in that emergency population. It's a level three trauma center. What does that mean? That means that they have the basic capability to receive and stabilize patients, but they don't have the advanced capability to deliver definitive care. So what happens to a lot of the trauma patients uh, in that region, that the whole south, uh, southern, and, and slightly eastern region of North Carolina, is those patients get moved to Cape Fear. They get stabilized, then they get transported over an hour away to Raleigh to where the level one, level two trauma centers are. And what would be the difference between a level three and a level one and level two? The big difference is really the surgical subspecialties. So having the oral maxillofacial surgeon, the orthopedic surgeon, the vascular surgeon, the neurosurgeon, having those are what really makes a difference between the level three and then or being able to keep them as a level two Mm -hmm. so that you can deliver the more definitive care. So, so think about this. Yeah. Cape Fear, in a rural area of North Carolina, has trouble attracting neurosurgeons, oral maxillofacial surgeons, orthopedic surgeons. And as a result, their patients have to get evacuated to Raleigh. Eight miles away, we have a military hospital with orthopedic, uh, with oral maxillofacial, orthopedic surgeons, not so much neuro, but that could be changed, who are underutilized, yeah. who don't have sufficient workload, who don't have the workload of the type and case mix we want. So this is the textbook 
public-private partnership, right? So if Cape Fear and Walmart were to work together, what would happen? DOD would win. DOD would get the workload it needs for its providers. Cape Fear would win. Cape Fear would now have oral maxillofacial orthopedic uh, surgeons. It would now be able to keep those patients, fill its, make better use of its capacity and, and ward and holding capability, et cetera. And the community wins. Instead, of, your, your loved one is in a tragic accident. Uh, instead of getting evacuated an hour away to Raleigh and having to deal with, am I driving up there? Now, am I driving up there for the next month, every day for the next month? Now they're, they're being treated uh, close to home, but with the same high level quality of care you could have gotten in Raleigh. So when you think about what DOD needs, what the community needs, what the civilian trauma system needs, it really is just textbook public-private partnership, win, win, win. You have five actions to improving uh, military uh, hospital performance, and we did properly define roles and missions, financial management uh, reforms, uh, data management reforms, and you just did uh, the importance of Mm -hmm. leveraging uh, private-public partnerships. I want to talk about the other action that you have in your report, and that is um, the leadership and operational management reforms that you offer. Could you tell us more about those? And and this ties back again to that first one about the roles and missions. So, you know, in that Section 703 uh, of the Defense Authorization Bill that said, for the hospitals that aren't your readiness focus, let's let's identify that and manage them for what they're they're about. So you start to think about how do we run our hospitals? We, we run, we're the military, right? We run our hospitals like a military unit, right? We have a commanding – we don't have a CEO. We have a commanding officer. People have rank. Uh, we have colonels and then we have majors and then we have enlisted uh, personnel in these hospitals. The enlisted people might have to show up for a formation at times. But running that hospital, leadership is leadership in some ways, but it's a different function, right? Running a hospital is a different function than running a military unit. We're very good at running military units. We're very good at at breeding leaders that can, and growing leaders, that can perform operational control of forces in a combat zone. Running a hospital is not a core function. So a simple thing off the bat is for those hospitals that, that aren't going to be the key readiness platforms that we're either going to run in a remote place because we have to or, or that we're going to downsize to a clinic, what about bringing in civilian leadership? What about bringing in somebody who's really, really good at running hospitals, whether that's the Hospital Corporation of America, whether that's Mayo, whether that's uh, Spectrum Healthcare is a company I mentioned in there, whoever that is, let's bring in somebody who's really good at that and say, you do this. We want some control because this is an important capability. We have uh, it's a vital mission of us to provide high quality care to our beneficiaries. And we would be not achieving our mission if we didn't do that. So we want it done and we want it done well, but we don't have to run the day-to-day operations of it. So thinking about how these facilities should be organized and how they should be led is one key example. Competition we talked about also before as one of the root causes. These hospitals should have to compete for beneficiaries. We should not try to use coercive mechanisms to get our beneficiaries into the hospitals. Uh, We've done that in the past. We've tried to say, your benefit is specified in this way. I can cancel your primary care manager and move you over here, move you over there. That's not a good way to manage a population, right? People should come to our hospitals because they're the best hospitals. They get the best service there. They get the best care there. Competition, subjecting them to competition, is key as well. There's others mentioned, but those I think are some of the highlights. What does the future hold for improving military hospital performance? We'll explore this question and so much more on our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors Returns. Next week, listen to a special edition of the Business of Government magazine, a year in review with host Michael Keegan. 
as he explores key trends in government management and highlights insights from a host of government executives who are changing the way the government does business. That's next week on a special New Year's edition of the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with John Whitley, author of the IBM Center Report, Five Actions to Improve Military Hospital Performance. So, uh, you know, John, what are some of the key challenges facing the military health system in adopting your recommended actions? Mm-hmm. The, the key that I've tried to – one of the keys I tried to emphasize in the report and, and talking with you is, is the importance of thinking about readiness and accomplishing the readiness mission. I, I might, uh, if we have time here, actually go – just tell a story that I heard. I was actually down at Fort Bragg uh, last week. And we talked about uh, the largest cause of death, potentially death of potentially survivable casualties, is hemorrhages, bleeding out, right? And and one of the things we had to relearn at the start of the wars was the importance of tourniquets for extremity hemorrhage. But we still have the problem of people who are bleeding inside their body, inside the stomach or the abdomen or the or the chest area. And really, the answer to that is is surgery. You have to you have to have a surgeon there who can open. The patient who can open the casualty and and find the bleeding and stop the bleeding and and the quicker you get that done, we heard a lot about the golden hour trying to get that done within an hour, uh, in in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we really even want to push that. We want to get that down to minutes. If we can get that down to 19 minutes, we can actually save 95 percent wow. of the patients. I mean, this is very powerful. So I, I was just going to tell you a story. I was down at Fort Bragg. This is uh, – I might have some of the, the specific details wrong, but this is an actual mission. So we've, we've developed this capability of getting surgery within earshot of the gunfire and this time putting it on, putting it on airplanes, on either helicopters or fixed-wing airplanes. And so a mission, I believe it was uh, last year, uh, one of the test proof of concepts for this capability was a, uh, a ranger, a uh, soldier, uh, got shot in the chest within minutes – was transported to one of these mobile surgical units that exists in the back of an airplane. This is a tactical environment, right? So picture a surgeon in a noisy environment with people shooting with night vision goggles on. Patient gets there, dies when he gets to the airplane. Physiologically dead, hard to stop. Dragged in. Now, once the plane's taking off, we probably have we might have a, a you know a headlamp on, right? In a noisy airplane, bouncing all around, people yelling, no operating with a headlamp. We had a surgeon. This is we're minutes now mm-hmm. from yeah. from the op- operation. Opens the chest, manually massages the heart to restart the heart beating. Treats the patient. The patient survives. That's what our military medical providers are doing right now. Wow. That's what they're doing. That's that. Those are the kind of lives they're saving. And how? Uh, and so. The question becomes: We built that capability uh, from 2001 to present. It took 
a long time to get to where we are right now. So the issue facing DOD is, is how do we keep that capability and how do we take it even further? And the challenge is the status quo doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. So what these actions do, uh, the workload that we have in the military hospitals now doesn't train that. That provider was uh, was not an active duty provider. It was a, a, a reservist uh, who was working in a civilian trauma center in their day job. So how do we get our people, our military, in particular our active duty military medical force, to have that level of skill and to be able to do that? Um, that's what the actions in the report talk about. We need to define which facilities are going to be used as training platforms for that, and then we need to make the investments in those facilities to make it happen. Uh, Then we need to take the facilities that that just can't get there, and it's okay. We understand that. Some of the facilities can't get there. And then we need to say, let's think about those, and let's, let's manage those for what we want out of them. We want beneficiary care out of them. Let's fund them and equip them to the capability that they can support, whether that's inpatient or not, and then let's manage them to deliver the best quality care at the lowest possible cost we can. So the challenges are really starting to, to work through. That's a big cultural change, right? So a big challenge is culture. We got we to gotta, uh, help and work with, with all of our colleagues uh, to understand the importance of this change. And that that's un, this change doesn't mean the end of military medicine. It means military medicine will look different, but it'll be a community focused on its mission and doing things like what was done for that ranger. Uh, when we're doing that, we're accomplishing our mission. So uh, the challenges are we have some cultural change to get through. Then we have a lot. This is hard stuff to do. We have to work with our communities. Uh, in, hus- in communities where we're going to expand our capability, we have to talk to the other hospitals. In the neighborhood. Does this make sense? Should we do it in partnership with you? Should we do it independently? How should we do this in a way that's good for the community? It's not just good for DOD, but it's good for everybody. Uh, in the facilities, in the locations where we're going to downsize, we have to talk to the communities there. This is what this is going to mean for you. We can't sustain this. We can't afford to sustain a capability that, that that's not economically efficient, that's not uh, – clinically safe. So how are we going to redo it? And what does it mean for you? What does it mean for the community, the provider community? What does it mean for the beneficiary community? So we have a lot of analysis to do. We have a lot of of communication and discussions to have. Uh, The good news is the executive branch likes to complain about the help they get from Congress. Uh, The good news in this case is is Congress is there. Congress is in in many ways leading the department. Uh, They've they've studied the problem. Uh, They've gotten a good handle on what the challenges are. We have a real opportunity here for the Congress and the department to work together uh, to make these changes happen. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And more importantly, I enjoyed working with you to make to bring this report to fruition. But what prompted your interest in this area? And could you tell us about how you went about conducting the research mm-hmm. for this report? Mm-hmm. So I've been I've been involved in military health care for a long time. I used to work in the Department of Defense uh, on the issues. I worked, you mentioned the Military Compensation Retirement Modernization Commission. I worked uh, for that commission as well. And so I work, uh, and I do a lot of uh, studies and analyses uh, in these areas. So certainly this is this is uh, what I spent a good bit of my career working on. I actually go back, I, I mentioned before that I was in the Army. I was actually an Army uh, medic at one time. Uh, so so I have a little bit of uh, a small amount. I don't want to overstate uh, it. But I do have a little bit of operational experience here too as well. And it's just so important. It's um, when we send men and women into combat, uh, you know, we really need to 
to ensure that that we've done everything we possibly can to make sure that if they get injured, they can uh, and there's any possible way to save that life, to save that limb, uh, that we can do it. So this is this is really important. Lives really do depend on this. Great. John, thanks for coming in and talking to me. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with John Whitley, author of the IBM Center Report, Five Actions to Improve Military Hospital Performance. You can download this and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. Next week, listen to a special edition of the Business of Government magazine, a year in review with host Michael Keegan, as he explores key trends in government management and highlights insights from a host of government executives who are changing the way the government does business. That's next week on a special New Year's edition of the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.